6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his teaching on the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. Well, we're completing the final session of our review of the Epistle to the Ephesians, which focuses on the armor of God, and we're going to cover chapter 6 from verse 10 to the end. And uh, this is our final session in this review of the uh, uh, Epistle of the Ephesians. We're going to talk a little bit about our desperate warfare. You and I are engaged, whether we realize it or not, in a desperate warfare. And did you realize that? We need to understand that uh, we are engaged in that warfare, and are we equipped adequately? Are we prepared for what we are actually engaged in? Or are each of us a sitting duck? That's really the issue before us. And uh, so we're going to study the armor of God and Paul's concluding comments on the entire epistle here. The armor of God is Ephesians 6, chapter 10 through 18. And then the concluding remarks are 19 to the end. We'll talk about our predicament. We'll talk about the strategic assessment. What are we facing? And then we're going to go through Paul's armament list. He lists seven things that we have to have put on. Not just one or two, all seven. We need to be girded with truth. He's going to talk about the breastplate of righteousness, the preparation for the gospel, our shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. And most people, when you look these lists up in commentaries, they miss the most important one. That's the list. Not quite. There's a seventh, final one, the heavy artillery that we'll be dealing with. And then, of course, we'll go through Paul's concluding comments for, in the epistle. But the, the underlying reality that we need to come to grips with is that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. A very familiar verse to most of us, but let's understand what that's really talking about. We're talking about not flesh and blood. We're talking about ranks of angels here. Those terms in the Greek are ranks of fallen angels, demons, and the like. That's what we're up against. This is serious stuff. So I want to, before we get into the epistle itself, just back up a little bit and re-examine our presumptions about this reality that we find ourselves in. And uh, if I take put man right in the middle of it. I'll use Da Vinci's Vitruvian man as a symbol here of mankind, us. And let's take things that are smaller than us and bigger than us. Things that are going on the large size, we talk about the cosmos, the heavens, the planets, the universe. As we go and look at largeness, the great discovery of 20th century science is that the universe is finite. It's not infinite. There's a point at which you reach the end of it. It's very big, but it's finite. That's profoundly significant to the field of astronomy and astrophysics and so forth. So it's finite, key point. 
okay, so it's, we're bounded in our reality on the largest. Let's look the other way and for some other surprises. As we look at smallness, we're now dealing with what mathematicians would call hyperspaces, spaces of uh, very, very small spaces. So we're going to explore smallness here a little bit, and that leads us into this, uh, to the uh, perception of quantum physics, subatomic particles. And we're going to discover in that world a surprising boundary. We discover that the universe is made up of units that are indivisible. There is a limit to smallness. You and I would imagine that things could be infinitely small. No, there's a point at which they can't be smaller than. We'll talk a little bit about that. As just a little uh, thought experiment here, let's imagine the model of the atom. In school, we all uh, were taught that the atom, take the simplest one, uh, the hydrogen atom, there's a nucleus and it's surrounded by an orbiting electron. That's one way of rendering this. The nucleus is in the center, the electron around the outside. Now, this is not drawn to scale. The nucleus, we know, is in the neighborhood of 10 to the minus 13 centimeters. That's a very, very, very small uh, dimension. 10 to the minus 13. 10 with point zero 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 thirteen zeros before you get to the 10. And uh, the atom itself is larger than that. It's 10 to the minus 8. The point I'm making here is the ratio of the nucleus to the total thing is a ratio of 10 to the 5th or 100,000 times. In other words, take the nucleus and let that be, say, a, a size of a golf ball. You need 100,000 golf balls in a row to reach to the electron. You get a feeling for the, the size difference here is staggering, 100,000 times, if you will. But that's just linearly. If we do that in two dimensions to get area, like acreage, or three dimensions to get volume, you then have to take the 10 to the 5th, and you need a cubit. That is 10 to the 5th times 10 to the 5th times 10 to the 5th. So the ratio of that nucleus to the total volume of the atom is 10 to the 5th, one part and 10 to the 5th with 15 zeros at it. That, again, is a number so big you and I can't grasp it. That's the same ratio as one second has to 30 million years. In other words, 10 to the 15th seconds is 30 million years. You, you see the range, I'm trying to get across that this, an atom is mostly empty space by a factor of that ratio, one second to 30 million years. If I say this podium is solid, most of us would agree, but if Gary down here said uh, there's nothing here, he's more correct than we are by a ratio of 30 million years to one second. Do you follow me? So this world we're in, we discover, is mostly empty. And it's really, then why does this podium seem solid? Well, because it's, it, 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 even though it's empty space, you see, it's the, the, the conjecture that it is uh, empty space is more accurate than the idea that it's solid, is what I'm saying, by that same ratio. Now, let me go at it another way. If you take a piece of string, you can cut it in half and throw half of it away. You would think you could do that forever. You could take what you got left, cut it in half, throw the other half away. You would think you could do that 
indefinitely, at least in our imagination. It finally gets so small you couldn't handle it comfortably, but conceptually you figure whatever you've got left, you could cut in half and throw half of it away, right? Turns out that's not true. When you get 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, it can't get any smaller than that. If you try to cut that in half, it suddenly is everywhere at the same time. It loses a property called locality. And the limits, they lose locality. And that's true not just of length. It's true of mass. It's true of energy. It's true of time. We discover that everything we encounter is made up of indivisible units, things that can't be smaller. It's digital. We live in a digital simulation. And that's a staggering implication. In fact, one of the pioneers of particle physics committed suicide because he couldn't handle the implications of that. There's a Planck length, there's a Planck length, there's a Planck time. There's no period of time shorter than 10 to the minus 43 seconds. It's quantified also. So here's the point I'm trying to get at. The thing we consider reality is bounded. It's not infinitely large. It's not infinitely small. It is a subset of a larger reality in the microcosm and the macrocosm. So you and I are living in what actually is a virtual reality, like a it's like a, a, a electronic game. In fact, in Scientific American, in June of 2005, they had an article on this kind of thing, and they pointed out that it appears that our universe is but a shadow of a larger reality. That's what the scientists have discovered by their techniques. That's exactly what the Bible has said all along. And... Uh, it, it turns out that if these the constants of physics they now are discovering are not constant, that implies that the, our, our universe is but a shadow of a larger reality. And that's what the Bible has said in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, deals with this all through the scripture. In fact, I'd like to take just one verse from our study of the, of the Ephesians, remember back in chapter 3, where Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is that breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. You may recall that he lists four dimensions, length, breadth, length, depth, and height in the, in the Greek. Those are four dimensions. Now, was was. Paul equipped to steal in hyperspaces, spaces in more than three? No, but the Holy Spirit guided him here, so we're dealing in a four-dimensional... We know today, you and I live in a four-dimensional space. In fact, if we, we, uh, the most important lecture in mathematics was given in 1854, on June 10th, by George Riemann, introduced metric, spence, uh, metric tensors. It took 60 years for that mathematics to bear fruit and it did, of course, with Einstein's theory of relativity and four-dimensional space-time. And he, Einstein went to his death because he, he couldn't go beyond that. He, he didn't think of making it five dimensions. Kaluza and Klein did in 53, and that re, you know, rendered discoveries in light and supergravity. And finally, Yang Mills in 63 reconciled electromagnetic nuclear forces. So there's now a, a, a unifying concept of all of these. We now realize that we live in probably 10 dimensions Four of them are directly discernible. Six are curled in less than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. And the current thinking in science from 1984 on is that we live in a 10-dimensional space. And there's a lot of controversies about all of these things. Nachmanides, a Hebrew sage in the 13th century, concluded 
that the universe has 10 dimensions. He did that from the study, his study of Genesis chapter 1. Only four of these are knowable, he says. Six are not knowable. That's his vocabulary. Particle physicists in the 20th century discovered that we live in 10 dimensions. Four are directly measurable, three spatial ones in time, just as Paul indicated in Ephesians 3.18. Six are, we know are there, we can infer they're there, we can't get them directly. They, uh, they're inferable only by indirect means. So in it, the, we spent millions of dollars on atomic accelerators to discover what Nachmanides concluded from his study of the Genesis text. But I want to... Before we go further in Ephesians, I want to give you another glimpse of this reality we face from the Scripture. In Daniel chapter 10, there's an episode that is very disturbing. We get a glimpse of what I'll call the dark side. Uh, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name is called Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, and the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he withstood the thing and had understanding of the vision. Now this is uh, in the first year of Cyrus's public career. It's Daniel's third year uh, out of public life. He's in retirement. It's two years after the Jews were allowed to return after the Babylonian captivity. Only about 50,000 took advantage of that freedom. And uh, they'd, be, they'd gone back and started rebuilding the temple. Daniel is still there in Babylon, probably because of his age. And he, he just stayed there. He did not return with the exiles. But anyway, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. He is fasting and praying for three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh into my, or wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day... Of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittikel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz, his body was also like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as the lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like color of two polished brass, and the voice of his words were like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone, and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. And yet I heard the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground." And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, and understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Can you imagine? Huh? Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God. Thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. And lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. Understand what this messenger, this angel apparently, some kind of major messenger, he was dispatched, when Daniel started fasting, he was dispatched to send him a message. But 
it took tw for 21 days, he is held back by some kind of a creature here called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. But, and, he, and he couldn't get through until Michael is dispatched to help him. And Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And then he said, now I'm come. He's now gotten through. Strange story. You would think angels can do anything. No, apparently there's some combat involved. This angel with a message for Daniel was fighting for 21 days before he had the, the muscle added to get him through, right? Now come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. This is verse, this is chapter 10 of the book of Daniel. Daniel is a 12 chapter book. Cha the two chapters that follow this chapter are this final climactic vision of Daniel that this guy is giving Daniel. So this chapter 10 is just the preamble. He's fighting through to get the message that will make Cacupi 11 and 12. The prince of the, prince of the kingdom of Persia. Apparently behind the Persian Empire, there is a spiritual leader of some kind called here the prince of the kingdom. We find that uh, in, in uh, speaking of Lucifer in, uh, in um, both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we find these titles being used of personages behind the scenes. Well, this is one of the strange ones here. And for 21 days of our time, this uh, creature prevented the messenger from getting through. But he continues here, And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake, and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. It goes on. Many scholars believe this may have been an Old Testament appearance of Christ. Others don't think so because he wouldn't have needed Michael to help him. You follow me? So there's some you know, scholastic debate about the details. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be unto thee, and be strong. Yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, for there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince. Michael is the prince of Israel, in effect. Now what this messenger is saying, he's been held for 21 days until Michael helped him get through. I'm come to give you a message. When I'm through with you, I've got to go back and fight this guy again. And then there's going to be another guy, by the, the, the prince of Greece is going to show up. Well, the Greek empire followed the Persian empire 200 years later. So is there a relationship here? Apparently. I'm come to thee, and now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. And all this is a, just a prelude to Daniel 11 and 12. We won't take, I just want to give you that glimpse. There is combat going on behind the geopolitical scenes that we observe. And of course, the ultimate combatant is Satan himself. And his origin and his agenda and destiny is something that you need to study. We, we'll summarize it here for our purposes, but you want to... Uh, understand that background. 
Uh, he's always addressed indirectly in the scripture. In Genesis 3, God speaks to him. Isaiah 14, he's spoken of as the king of Babylon. And in Matthew 16, even uh, uh, there, he's, he's uh, spoken of indirectly. And uh, he serves as our accuser. In Job chapter 1, Satan has access to heaven to accuse us. He's the tempter. Remember, he tempted the Lord with three major temptations that are recorded in Luke chapter 4. In Revelation 12, there's a summary of the whole drama here. There's a woman with the sun and moon and 12 stars at her feet. That's an idiom of Israel, so, de so declared by Jacob back there in Genesis. And she's with child. This is not the church. Church didn't give birth to Christ. Israel did. And then we have another person that introduced the red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns, and he's identified in verse 9 of chapter 12 as Satan himself. And he's there to devour the man-child that the woman is going to bring forth when born. But the man-child is the one that's going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who's that man-child? Jesus Christ, of course. And he's caught up to God in his throne. And uh, the woman then flees into the wilderness for 1260 days. That's going to be the tribulation that we'll, we, we need to study. Michael and his angels there fight the dragon and his angels. And the dragon is cast to the earth where he persecutes the woman for three and a half years. This whole summary in Revelation 12 is the panorama, the, uh, this cosmic war going on that the major players are, of course, Israel, Satan, and the, the birth and destiny of Jesus Christ as the victor. Now, so the woman is Israel, the red dragon is the serpent, the devil, or Satan, as you want to call it, however you want to call him. The man-child is our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so... Now, where is Satan then? God expelled him from heaven, from the mount of God, we just understand from Ezekiel 28. And he was cast from God's government in heaven in Luke 10, but was still allowed access to God to, to accuse us, both in Job 1 and Zechariah 3. In the tribulation, Satan will be cast from heaven and restricted to the earth. It's going to be a terrible, terrible time that's uh, on our horizon. And during the millennium, he's going to be chained and sealed in the bottomless pit, but not forever. He's going to be briefly released at the end of the millennium, and after a brief uh, try, he will be cast in the lake of fire. That's his whole uh, agenda. But the stratagems of Satan, as God reveals his plan for mankind, Satan is allowed to focus his attack. And uh, he starts by corrupting Adam's line in Genesis 6, and it, as, as it becomes clear that it's going to be through Abraham, he's allowed to, he thus can focus on Abraham with the famine in Genesis 50, the destruction of the male line in Exodus 1 uh, under Egypt, Pharaoh's pursuit of Israel even after he released them to go, is all Satan's attempt to wipe out the Jews, thus to wipe out the Messianic line. When God told Abraham that after 400 years his people would come back to this land, that gave Satan 400 years to lay down a minefield, populating them again with the Nephilim and what have you. That's why Joshua was instructed to wipe out every man, woman, child of certain tribes because to, to deal with this contamination of the uh, genealogies. As God announces he's going to work through David, it allows Satan to focus his attack on the Davidic line. And attacks all the way, the whole chronicle of the Bible history is Satan's attempt to thwart the plan of God. Joram kills all his brothers but misses one. The Abram slew all but Ahaziah. Athaliah kills all but she misses Joash. And then Hezekiah is assaulted and so forth. You can go through the whole history, historical books of the Bible, and see it's really a drama 
where Satan is trying to thwart the plan of God. Haman's attempt to wipe out the Jews in the days of Esther is again another chapter in this attempt to, of Satan to wipe out God's program. In the New Testament, it continues. Joseph's fear about Mary being pregnant. Herod's attempts by wiping out all the babes in, at Nazareth, when he opens up his ministry, they try to throw him off a cliff. During his ministry, there are two storms at sea that terrify the local fishermen who knew those waters, who made their living on those waters, were terrified. I suggest those storms were not normal storms. And of course, the ultimate is the cross. I don't know cross. And all this is summarized in Revelation 12, as is just we've skimmed through. But the main point that I want to make, and the reason we're going through this, is Satan is not finished yet. He's not through with us. We need to understand that. We need to understand his titles. He's the prince of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the head of the world, rulers of darkness. He's the god of this age. We need to understand that. As we, as we watch the media and the, the whole tide of circumstance shape things that are irrational, we begin to see Satan's hand moving uh, in his domain here. So our present predicament, let's take a look at ourselves in America. We are in moral freefall. We are victims of spiritual warfare. Well, we've got financial problems. We've got military problems. No, no. Those are all derivative of our spiritual bankruptcy. We have the media that's supposed to inform a free people shaping our opinions rather than informing them. They're masking the truth. We've never seen that more evident than in the past year where they, they spent many tries to hide the information that we need. We have courts that are perverting justice. There's no longer separation of powers as the Constitution provided. We have schools that are deliberately designed to dumb down our youth. That's the program. That's the plan. Check it out. We have replaced our traditional heritage with multiculturalism, revisionism, and values relativism. They can't find truth because truth is all relative. You have your truth, I have mine. That's denying that truth exists, of course. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ephesians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us at 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.